Buddhist teachings is about freeing the heart and mind from the deeply conditioned habits of greed and attachment, of hatred and anger and fear, of freeing the heart and mind from the sleep of delusion and ignorance. And all of the different practices we do, the practices of generosity, of sila, of non-harming, of concentration, of insight, of loving kindness, of compassion, all of the different practices serve this end of freedom. And the Buddha expressed this very explicitly. <clears throat> he said, the spiritual life does not have worldly gain, honor, or renown for its virtue, for its benefit. It does not have the attainment of virtue for its benefit or attainment of concentration or knowledge or vision for its benefit. It is the unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this spiritual life, <clears throat> its heartwood and its end. So that's quite a statement, given all the practices we do. You know, that it's not for the purpose of developing generosity or compassion or virtue or concentration or vision or insight, all of these practices serve the end of freedom. So even as we engage in the various practices and methods, it's important to keep in mind what it's really all about. And although there are many teachings in the various traditions of Buddhism, all of them converge in one understanding of what liberates the heart. The Buddha expressed it many times in the discourses in the suttas. <clears throat> he said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself. The supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. Elsewhere he said, this is the deathless, namely liberation through non-clinging. And these same truths are expressed in the Mahayana and Vajrayana traditions of Buddhism. The great Indian adept Talopa said to his disciple Naropa, you are not fettered by appearances. That is, you are not fettered by experiences. You are fettered by attachment. So cut your attachment. It's always the same message. In more recent times, in this, I think it was the beginning, uh, I think he lived in the early 1900s. Not totally sure. Great Tibetan master, Patrul Rinpoche. And he was kind of a vagabond monk wandering around Tibet, very great realized being, and very much beloved by the common people in Tibet. <clears throat> so this is from a teaching which he called Advice from Me to Myself. 
Okay, so this is Pacho Rinpoche giving himself some advice. Listen up, old bad karma Pachal, you dweller in distraction. For ages now you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life. Your mind is spinning around about is spinning around about carrying out a lot of useful useless projects. It's a waste. Give it up. Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish, with never enough time to finish them, just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects, which never come to an end, but keep spreading out more like ripples in water. Don't be a fool for once, just sit tight. You beat your little Damaru drum, you know, that little Tibetan drum, and your audience thinks it's charming to hear. You're reciting words about offering up your body, but you still haven't stopped holding it dear. You're making your little symbols go cling, cling, without keeping the ultimate purpose in mind. All this Dharma practice equipment that seems so attractive, forget about it. Even though you don't know how to practice, just let go of everything. That's what I really want to say. If you let go of everything, 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 that's the real point. So that's Patrol's advice to himself, which we might take to heart. Just let go of everything. That's what I really want to say. What's important for us is to realize that non-clinging is not some state to imagine in the far-off future. It's what our practice is now in each moment. This is what we're practicing. We're practicing non-clinging. All the techniques, all the methods, all the teachings serve this end. The mind of non-attachment, the mind of non-grasping, of not holding on. As we know, our unfolding experience keeps changing. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. But the practice of liberation is always the same. And that is the mind that is not grasping, the mind that is not holding on. We're not practicing for some better experience, however wonderful or delightful it may be. We're practicing what the Buddha called the heart's release. And so it's to remember over and over again that freedom is in the non-grasping mind. So how do we accomplish this release of the heart? This is really the question that most concerns us as we engage in our practice. How do we accomplish this non-grasping? One way 
is through an increasingly refined understanding, refined awareness of impermanence. Someone once asked Suzuki Roshi, who was great Zen master in the States. He had come from Japan. He had started the San Francisco Zen Center. And some of you may know him through his book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. A wonderful, wonderful book. Someone asked him by saying, you know, I've been listening to your lectures for years now, but I just don't understand. Could you please put it in a nutshell? Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? And Suzuki replied, everything changes. It's so easy to think we understand that. You know, it's not some esoteric wisdom. Everything changes. Everybody knows everything changes. But do we really know it? Are we living from that place of understanding? When we pay attention, and this is our practice, paying attention, when we pay attention, we see impermanence happening on every level of experience. From science, we know of the birth and death of stars and galaxies. Impermanence is happening on that macro level. And on the smallest level, the subatomic particle level, the rate of change is incredibly fast. This is from an article I read. It was in a Vipassana journal, The Inquiring Mind. One of the teachers who's, who's also very interested in science, and he writes a lot about the confluence of Dharma and science. He said, in the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in what scientists have named attoseconds, a millionth of a trillionth of a second. It takes an electron about one attosecond to travel all the way around a proton. A millionth of a trillionth of a second. Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level deeper into reality, an attosecond would be considered a long nap. (laughs) Down here, inside the proton, time is measured in zeptoseconds, a billionth of a trillionth of a second. And then this is the the author writing. I think at some point the physicists realized that they had entered a Marx Brothers routine (laughs) where the jokes are coming so fast you begin to see that it's all a joke. So when they started measuring things changing even faster in trillionths of a trillionth of a second, they named it a yokto second. <laughs> Atto, zepto, and yokto. <laughs> By the, t- the time it takes for a quark, a subatomic something rather, to circle around inside a proton is somewhere between a zepto second and a yokto second. <laughs> All you can do is smile and let go. So on some fundamental level of reality, which is beyond our normal perception, things are changing really quickly. 
unfortunately, we don't need to necessarily refine our perception to that extent to have transforming insights into the nature of change. There can be powerful moments of letting go even on very conventional levels, you know, of seeing change. Just coming from the States to England, you know, one of the most striking things about being here is just kind of the history that's on the land, the the age of, you know, the, the churches and the old houses and the ruins, you know, some times thousands of years old. And it's so easy just to imagine the countless lives, you know, lived on this land, in these old buildings. People living their lives with as vivid and compelling stories as our own. And yet, where are they now? You know, what's left of those countless stories? The truth of change, the truth of impermanence, the truth of lives being lived and died is so apparent. When we look at nature, we see the impermanence in nature so clearly and so obviously. You know, the changes of the seasons, the changes of the weather. We see impermanence in the changing nature of our relationships. You know, very often we'd like our relationships to stay just a certain way, and of course they don't. We see the changing nature in our work. We see it very clearly in our own bodies and minds. How many times in the world have people been living peaceful, stable, just ordinary lives, things going along smoothly, and then in a moment something happens and their whole life is turned upside down? You know, it could be a natural disaster. It could be a sudden accident. It could be the onslaught of some illness or disease. What's important for us to realize is that these changes are not a mistake. This is the nature of the world. This is the nature of conditioned phenomena. Everything changes. Everything is unstable in its nature. There's a mantra that I used, (coughs) a self-created mantra, which came to me when I had a a sudden hiking accident very unexpectedly and it's like everything changed in that moment in terms of plans for travel and it wasn't disaster but it was clearly unwanted and so this little phrase came to mind anything can happen anytime anything can happen anytime and what was interesting when this came to my mind We might hear that and at first assume, oh, that, you know, we think that is kind of living in this paranoid state. Anything can happen anytime, you know, and get very defensive. And it was just the opposite. When that understanding came to mind, anything can happen anytime, 
It was like my heart relaxed. It just opened to the truth that things change, that things are not stable. And so it became very freeing to acknowledge it rather than you know, a cause for fear or anxiety. We relax into the truth, into the reality of how things actually are. We can also deepen our understanding, our direct understanding of change and impermanence in our meditation practice. And we've had many experiences of this. Have you noticed how we can have a really good, easy, concentrated sitting, everything is going smoothly, you know, the mindfulness is strong, the bell rings, we get up and we think, oh yeah, I'll get up, I'll do some walking, I'll just pick up where I left off. And we come back in the next sitting and the mind is restless and the body hurts and it's not at all like the last sitting was. Or just the opposite. You know, we can be having a really difficult time and oh, the whole day is going to be like that. And then we get up, do some walking, come back, maybe the mind is completely settled down. We really need to integrate this understanding that all conditions are subject to change. One way of refining this insight, and this takes our meditation to a deeper level, is paying attention not only to what arises, you know, a breath, a sound, a thought, an emotion, whatever it is, paying attention not only to what arises, but also to what happens to the experience. So we're really focusing our attention not so completely on the content of it, but on the process. What happens to the arising object? When we look, when we're mindful, we see that whatever it is arises and is there for some time and changes. But we have to see it, not simply know it intellectually. Over and over again we have to see the changing nature of all arising things. Sounds arise and disappear. Sensations arise and change in some way. One breath follows another. And then we can take it even further. Because each of these experiences, a breath, a sound, a sensation, each one of these simple experiences is not just one thing. Each breath, each sound is made up of innumerable moments. How many vibrations and nuances and overtones and undertones? There is so much change happening in what we might conventionally call a sound. And when we're carefully attentive... We're right in the flow of that experience. So on all of these levels, through our direct and intimate experience of impermanence, you know, seeing it repeatedly, 
reflecting on it, that whatever arises in the mind, in the body, outside, whatever arises has the nature to pass away. That all of our experience is part of an endlessly passing show. It's like the current of a river or water falling over a waterfall. It doesn't stop for a moment. And through seeing this repeatedly and deeply, we slowly begin to decondition the habit of attachment, the habit of grasping. The more clearly we see the changing nature, the less tendency there is to try to hold on. The liberating power of this insight, this insight into impermanence on all of the levels, was expressed very um, precisely by the Buddha in one very startling teaching. It's a teaching that really could wake us up if, if we hear it correctly. He said, it would be better to live for a single day seeing the rapid rise and fall of phenomena you know, the momentary rise and fall in phenomena, it would be better to live a single day seeing that than to live a hundred years without seeing it. So what does that say about our lives and everything we value and where we put our attention? Better to live a single day to see that rapid rise and fall in a hundred years doing all the other things we enjoy doing and not seeing it. Why? Because it's precisely through the seeing directly. Again, it's not, a, it's not a conceptual knowing. It's when we are seeing it directly and immediately. The rapidity of change, that has the power to free the mind. That's what deconditions the grip of attachment. The Buddha gave some pretty explicit instructions for how to do this. If we're really interested in freeing the mind, if that's our intention, if that's our aspiration of freeing the heart and mind from suffering... The Buddha said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So these feelings are arising in every moment, all day long, with all our experience. Things are either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, moment after moment. Whatever feelings arise, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Do we do that? Probably not that much. Mostly we're busy liking the pleasant and not liking the unpleasant. The Buddha's not, he's not saying get attached to pleasant and have aversion to the unpleasant. He's saying with whatever feelings arise, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, abide contemplating the impermanence of those feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. 
and when not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana, the unconditioned. This is not a question of pulling away from experience. Rather, it's learning to not hold on. And we could understand this difference just in the nuance of two phrases. It's the difference between detachment and non-attachment. And often they get confused. You know, and sometimes Buddhists, Buddhism is characterized you know, as developing detachment. I think it's the wrong word. Because detachment implies a withdrawal from. Non-attachment implies a non-holding on. So we can be fully engaged in life and simply non-grasping. Liberation through non-clinging. In case we're still missing it, in case we still don't quite get it, as a great help to us, the Buddha pointed out those areas where we habitually do cling. So, I mean, we can understand non-clinging as the practice of freedom, but then we have to really look in our lives, okay, where is the clinging? How do we cling? What are the arenas of attachment? You know, in case we're not aware of them. As Carol mentioned last night, one of the most obvious places of attachment, and one which we can investigate very clearly, is attachment to sense pleasures. We like pleasant sights and sounds and smells and delicious tastes and pleasant sensations in the body and pleasant thoughts and emotions. You know, how often in meditation do we simply get lost in pleasant daydreaming and reveries? You know, it's a very pleasurable way to spend an hour. The, the hour goes quickly. You know, oh, that was a nice sitting. <laughs> What's even a little stranger, though, is how even when thoughts or memories are unpleasant, we can get attached to the rather dubious pleasure of simply being lost, simply being distracted. Yeah, and so the mind can be going over stuff that's, that's really not pleasant and still just enjoy being in that distracted space. We become absorbed in the dynamics of our stories. And we all have our own stories, our life story, and we can become so fascinated by it. So all of this, when we look at attachment to sense pleasures, including the pleasures of the mind, it reveals a lot about the power of desire, the power of addiction, the power of fascination. These are strong forces in our lives. They're not not easy things to unwind. Years ago, when I was practicing in India, this was back in the late 60s and early 70s, I had been there for quite some time already, and my practice was going pretty well. I had been there for 
a number of years and had done a lot of meditation, so my mind was quite concentrated and mindful and clear. And it's the kind of sitting, maybe you've had, maybe not, but it's the kind of sitting where you think you're going to get enlightened any moment. You know, it's just, you're just sitting there waiting. <laughs> now, unlike here, the conditions in India were, they were not so great. You know, just the physical conditions weren't great and the food was pretty poor. And in the evening, at evening time, what they would serve us is, was just a cup of tea and two tiny bananas. I mean, bananas about that big. So I'm sitting, deeply concentrated, mindful, about to get enlightened. The tea bell rings. I need the bananas. I have to have the bananas. And sure enough, just the force of the desire, enlightenment, I I need the bananas. And I would get up, go for the bananas, have the tea. I mean, I had to laugh at myself, just to see the ridiculousness of the situation. Of course, in about a second and a half, the bananas were gone. But the force of desire keeps pushing us. When we talk about examining or investigating desire or attachment to sense pleasures, it doesn't mean that we don't act in the world, and it doesn't mean that we don't enjoy pleasant experiences when they arise. Because in our lives, there are many pleasant things that come along. But can we learn to be fully present and open to them without clinging, without grasping, and without having desire be the driving force in our lives? And so we have to take a look. We really have to be honest with ourselves and be mindful and just see what's the driving energy in our lives. What are the choices we make? In addition to pleasant sense experience, we can also very easily get attached to pleasant meditative experiences. You know, these are even more seductive. There are times in the practice when there's a tremendous lightness and light and rapture and calm and concentration and very beautiful, sublime feelings. You know, happiness, clarity, joy really all the factors of awakening, all the wholesome factors of mind that the Buddha said, these are the the qualities to develop for enlightenment. So they're wholesome in themselves. They're good in themselves. It only becomes a problem when we become attached to those states rather than have them serve as a vehicle for non-clinging. There was one time when I was uh, at a monastery in Burma. I was there for a few months and I was going through kind of a hard time. And there were many weeks going through stages in practice, a lot, of, a lot of difficulty and struggle and unpleasantness in the body. and Just 
things you're probably quite familiar with. <coughs> it was not easy. It was not an easy time. So after weeks of this, day after day, and these were long, you know, we were sitting, practicing 14-hour days and very intensively, finally something opened. You know, it's like something opened, broke through, and I just got into this very easy, flow, light, beautiful place. And I go reporting it to my teacher, Saito Pandita, um, one day, and it continued the second day. And then I reported on the third day. And on the third day, he said, haven't you enjoyed this long enough? <laughs> I said, three days? I've just been through weeks. Of <laughs> but he was pointing out that my mind was just getting attached to that, to clinging to that. The point of everything we do is the heart's release. We're not doing this for these pleasant states, even when they come along, and they do come along, you know, at times, as a byproduct of practice. But the purpose of practice is not about that. And they can become just another attachment, so we want to let go of that. Freedom is not in some particular new experience. You know, however delightful it may be, it's in the mind of non-clinging. And it's in the mind of non-clinging now. So there's another little mantra I'd like to suggest to you. It's a rather awkward English construction. So you have to and wrap your mind around this a little bit. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. Okay? It doesn't matter to what you don't cling. So you don't have to wait for some special experience not to cling to. Why not not cling now to whatever's happening? Because it doesn't matter to what you don't cling. Can we take this in, that this is what we're practicing? We're practicing non-clinging. It's hard to really get this, even though it's simple to understand. There's a Thai laywoman. She was called Upasaka Ki. A very unusual woman. She was very inspired by the Dharma at an early age. And she went off with uh, a couple of relatives and really set up like a little hermitage, you know, where she devoted herself to practice. And this is very unusual in Thailand. Uh, I mean, most of the support there is for the monasteries and the monks and to a lesser extent the nuns and for lay women. It's... I mean, it was basically unheard of. But she was very, very motivated and inspired. Uh, And she practiced with this tremendous devotion and became very enlightened and became very well known. She uh, became a great teacher in Thailand. Uh, Very unusual that this happened. Uh, There's a book of her teachings which I would recommend to you. Uh, It's called Pure and Simple. 
and it's she's like a Zen master in her incisiveness. I mean, she just cuts through to the to the heart of liberation. So again, the name of the book is Pure and Simple. So this is one of the things she wrote in that book. If we want to see the real essence of the Dharma, we have to look deeply, profoundly. Then it's simply a matter of letting go all along the way. The theme of non-clinging covers everything from beginning to end. We have to look deeply and profoundly and then it's simply a matter of letting go all along the way. The theme of non-clinging covers everything from beginning to end. Okay, so one obvious arena of clinging that we can look at and investigate in our lives is the clinging to sense pleasures, clinging to the pleasures of meditative states. Another whole area of attachment that plays a powerful role in our lives is being attached to our views and opinions about things. We're attached very often to being right, you know, or to feeling that we're right. How many difficulties in relationships come about because of attachment to that view? You know, we have a feeling we're right about something, and then hold on tightly to that, and then are in conflict. What's amazing is that we often have very strong opinions about things we know nothing about. But it doesn't stop us from having an opinion. It's really interesting to look carefully at our opinions and to distinguish between those things we might know something about and things we don't know anything about, just so we can begin to separate the two a little bit. And it's also helpful to stay open even when we do have some experience with something. Now, it's very easy to develop pride about knowledge or even about genuine insights and realizations. I had one experience, again, these go back to my India days, after the beginning months of difficulty... Finally, you know, it came to a place, and I remember I was walking on the on the flat roof of the. It was like a monastery, a vihara, where I was staying. I was doing walking meditation, and all of a sudden, just the whole sense of duality collapsed. You know, and there was just a sense of oneness, and I got so excited. I was just kind of dancing around the roof. And it felt so free. I mean, I just felt so free because there was no separation. So I go running to my teacher, you know, and I'm telling him about this great non-dual oneness that happened. It was so free. And he just looked at me and he just said one thing. He said, don't recondition your mind. It was such a good teaching because already my mind was making a thing of it. This, oh, this is it. This is whatever. I was creating a whole 
reality around that experience, fixing the experience as if things were going to stay that way anyway, you know, which of course they didn't. We don't want to recondition our mind. We don't want to take pride even in experiences that are genuine. You know, there, there was something real that happened there. But we don't want to hold on to that either. We don't want to create a view around that. Whenever we're attached to a viewpoint, and this is not to say we don't have viewpoints, we can have them, but it's not being attached to them. As soon as we get attached to our particular way of viewing things, it's a setup for conflict. Because we always only see things from a particular perspective. And someone else is going to be seeing things from another perspective. I had a great teaching in this at a Buddhist Christian conference that I was at. This was quite a few years ago. It was in Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, which is the Trappist Abbey where Thomas Merton lived. And I was a hermit and then he wrote... So there was this big conference, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was there and some very high you know, church people, particularly in the Trappist and Benedictine orders. And at the end of the conference, the abbot of the monastery was kind of summing up you know, what had happened in the dialogue. And he said that the most meaningful thing for him, the abbot, happened not in all the discussions that we had, but one day when we were coming out of the chapter house and walking down the hall, he was walking behind the Dalai Lama. And he saw the Dalai Lama walk down the hall, and right at the end of the hall was a statue of the Virgin Mary. And the Dalai Lama stopped and bowed and paid respects, and then walked on. I can get tears in my eyes now just thinking about it. It's, for some reason, it's incredibly moving to me. And the abbot said, that was the most powerful thing that happened in the whole week. Just the respect that the Dalai Lama showed to another point of view, another whole, another whole symbol you know, of truth, of compassion, of love. And I thought to myself, in a million years, I wouldn't have stopped to bow to that statue. You know, I would, yeah, that's, this is a Catholic image. It really has nothing to do with me. I'm kind of a Jewish Buddhist. <laughs> but when, when the abbot said that, it just kind of opened my heart and my mind to see, yeah, it's just, it's just respect for common values, for values of love, values of compassion. You know? And when we're not so tightly attached to our view, our opinion, we actually can learn from one another. So this is just an area to look at in our lives. A 
attachment to sense pleasures, to meditative pleasures, attachment to views and opinions, the deepest attachment we have, and the one that is the cause of the most suffering in our lives, is the attachment we have and the clinging there is to the concept of self. That is the idea that there is someone behind experience to whom experience is happening. Now this is probably the most um, difficult of the Buddha's notions to begin to open to. It's not difficult to understand impermanence, even on an intellectual conceptual level, or to understand you know, that there's suffering in the world. But to begin to open to the idea of selflessness, that there's no one behind experience to whom it's happening. This constructed view of I, it's a, it's a construct, it's a mental concept. It happens, it arises when we don't look carefully enough at the impermanent, composite nature of experience. And so we identify with various aspects of experience as they arise, taking those things to be self. So just some examples of this. Generally, we're quite identified with the body. This is me. We wake up in the, mor- the morning, we look in the mirror. Yep, that's me, again. You know, all very familiar and very automatic. A friend of mine had laparoscopic surgery for a fibroid tumor. And they go in, in this very small incision, and there's a little <laughs> tiny video camera, you know, so the surgeon is guiding uh, the cutting away of the, the tumor. And kind of the reward of the surgery is you get the video. Well, my friend had absolutely no interest in watching it, but I did. So I, so I put it into my you know, VCR, and, and it's amazing. I mean, it's really amazing. It's a tour of the inside of the body. You know, and you see everything. You see the organs and the blood and the tumor and the, everything. When we see the body from the inside... I think we're much less likely to identify with the gallbladder as being self, you know, or the intestines as being self. But somehow we wrap it all up nicely in skin, and then we get very attached to it. <laughs> and we get attached to other people's wrapped, nicely wrapped up in skin. Because we're really not seeing deeply enough. We're just seeing the superficial appearance taking it to be self. The great Indian Saint Ramana Maharshi, he said, to identify with the body and yet seek happiness is like attempting to cross a river on the back of an alligator. (laughs) Identifying with the body, identifying with it. This doesn't mean not taking care of it, you know, being good to it, 
It's identifying with it. Taking it to be self is a setup for suffering. Okay, we create a felt sense of self when we identify with thoughts that arise in the mind. No, I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm judging, I'm remembering. The I is extra. We're adding that to the simple phenomena of a thought appearing. The thought comes and goes. The thought is thinking itself. The thought is the thinker. But when we're not mindful, the habit is we identify with the thought, and so we create this felt sense of I. I'm thinking. But that's extra. That's not in the thought itself. You know, we identify with all the stories we make up about ourselves, about other people. How many stories have you made up about your fellow meditators, about the teachers? (laughs) You know, so we just create these stories and then are lost in them, identified with them. We mostly live in the world of mental projections. Because we're identified with all this chatter that's going on in the mind. We create a felt sense of self when we identify with the various arising emotions. You know, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm afraid. And we don't even stop there. Then we go even further. I'm an angry person, I'm a fearful person, I'm a depressed person. And so we create a whole superstructure of self on top of a passing emotion. An emotion arises just like a cloud in the sky. Conditions come together, an emotion arises, conditions change, the emotion disappears. But we identify with it because we're not being mindful of it. We identify with it, we take it to be self, I, me, mine, and then we create this whole sense of our personality. For a long time I was working with the emotion of fear. It was coming up strongly in my practice. And I was building this whole story about myself. I'm such a fearful person and this is going to take 30 years of therapy to unwind and and I was teaching uh, with a colleague one time in Texas. You know, and we were just walking, going for a walk after lunch. And I was going on and on about my fear and you know, so deeply conditioned. And she turned to me at one point and she, she said something that I had said to others a million times. But you know, sometimes you just hear it at the right time. So I'm going on and on about my fear and how deep it is and it's going to take so long to unwind. She turned to me and she said, it's only a mind state. And I was just like in that moment, yeah, it's only a mind state. That's all. It's arising in the moment, out of certain conditions. It doesn't stay. It may re-arise, but each time it just comes, it goes. If we don't claim it as I, if we don't make a whole self-story about it, it's not a problem. It's only a mind state. the most subtle level of attachment and identification. Okay, we get identified with the body, we get identified with thoughts, we get identified with emotions. But with some, even beginning practice, we can begin to get a sense 
of all of these elements are just arising and passing and maybe have moments of real mindfulness when we're not identified. But the most subtle attachment, the most subtle identification that gives birth to a sense of self is the identification with consciousness, with awareness. Right? So even as we're knowing the thoughts and the sensations and the sounds, we become the one who's knowing. We identify with the knowing, creating a knower, an observer, a witness. So this becomes a very interesting place of investigation, how we create a sense of the observer or witness separate from experience. Right, that sense of self in the knowing. We begin to see how awareness itself can be made into a thing. You know, it's very easy to make a home of awareness and then to have the sense of self settle right into that home. But this is pretty subtle. So the question then is, how can we cut through even this identification with awareness? You know, so we're not creating a sense of self in that. So different traditions use different methods. One way that I found, it was, this was really transforming for my practice. And in a surprising way, it, has, it had to do with a shift of grammar. And just in that vein, this is a quote from Wittgenstein, a great philosopher. He said, the sense of a separate self is only a shadow cast by grammar. Okay, so just keep that in mind. What I found very helpful and transforming in my practice was to reframe experience in the passive voice. Usually, you know, we view experience through language in the active voice. I'm seeing, I'm hearing, I'm smelling, I'm moving, I'm acting, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. It's the active voice construction. When I change it into the passive voice, and I just kind of discovered this almost by chance or intuitively somehow it just happened in walking meditation it became very clear and I started framing the experience in the passive voice so as I was moving I would just think of it in terms of sensations being known that's the passive voice construction sensations or the movement being known What does that do? In the passive voice construction, there's no subject. There's no I there. It's just there's movement and it's being known. So just as an experiment, if you move your arm now, just see if you can get the movement being known. I mean, it's very simple. This, this, do you have to make any effort for it to be known? No, it doesn't take any effort at all. It's just being known. 
So you could go through the whole day like that, moment after moment, just experiences being known, movement being known, a sound being known, a thought being known, moment after moment. Just through that way of framing it, there's no subject, no self. There's that sense of oneness with the experience. So, you might play with that. As I say, this really transformed the way I practice because I'll just... (laughs) Uh, Tomorrow morning I'll elaborate a little more on this. A couple more things I want to mention tonight. Another way of cutting through the identification with awareness is by looking for the mind itself, to look for the knowing. And this is the great mystery of awareness. When you look for awareness, there's nothing to find. You know, when there's hearing, and you look to see if you can find what's knowingly hearing, and to do this, you know, the next... See if you can find what's knowing the hearing. There's nothing to find, and yet the knowing is happening. So this is the great mystery of awareness. In one Tibetan tradition, it's called the cognizing power of emptiness. Nothing to find, and yet the knowing is happening. So there's... one great Zen exchange between Bodhidharma, who was you know, brought the first patriarch of Zen, Buddhism in China, brought it from India to China, and his disciple, this, this person who became his uh, successor, his name was Huayka. So Bodhidharma is sitting in his cave you know, for seven years looking at the wall. Huayka is very disturbed. You know, he comes to the great master. He says, please teach me what he called the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas. And Bodhidharma says, the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas cannot be obtained from someone else. But Huayka is really suffering. And he's really suffering. And he says, my mind is distressed. Please pacify it. So Bodhidharma says, Present me your mind and I will pacify it. Now here's the liberating point. Hueka says, I've searched for my mind, but I can't find it. I've searched for my mind and I can't find it. So we should do the same thing. You know, look for your mind, look for the knowing. I've searched for it and I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says, There, I've pacified it. That is a I mean, it's cute, but that's not the point. When we really see, I've looked for the mind and I can't find it, it's already pacified. We see the empty, non-self nature of awareness. Okay, liberation through non-clinging. We accomplish it through seeing impermanence. We accomplish it through seeing it in all those arenas where we do cling. We accomplish it 
to the understanding of selflessness, the Buddha summed up all his teaching in one phrase. He said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So this is the Buddha's instruction to us. It's not a philosophic statement. This is our practice, moment to moment. The practice of non-clinging, the practice of freedom. So I just want to close with the enlightenment experience of a Zen nun. And this is from a book called Women of the Way. And it's a story of an abbess of a nunnery. Her name was Tejitsu. And she describes kind of her moment of awakening. Saw that experience arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Now let's... Such a fantastic image. She opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So let's sit for a few moments. Opening the clenched fists in our mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.